Father, we thank you that you are the head, the leader of the church. You've passed it on through your son, Jesus Christ, um, to build it. Um, even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's not a man or even one local body or some gigantic um, mega church. It's all believers. And you were at work preparing them for your son's return, Father, and, and for um, the maturity that you desire, and that we're going to talk about that today. As we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, it's very well known. I pray there'd be some things here that would only enhance that and deepen the understanding and help us get a grasp of not just the facts, but of the relationship with you that we have and what you've done. So um, guide us through this time and help us to draw closer to you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are talking about love because Paul had just interacted with the Corinthians in chapter 12, as man has broken it down, with a number of problems they were having. They had reversed what was important to the church. They had put tongues first. It was out of control. It wasn't beneficial. Uh, that gift was not serving the body. And so Paul had to write them. Somebody had written to him probably because he says now concerning in 12.1. He's addressing one of many problems they were having, and he is um, continuing with that. But he, he left us at the end of chapter 12 with this need for them, even though they were pursuing the showy, impressive gifts, the things that they thought would make them um, stand out. They wanted to be part of that. He said, I have a still more excellent way. And what God's always been after in gar- regarding spiritual gifts and anything to do with the church and the maturing of the church is this issue right here, this four-letter word of love. I don't know if it's always understood. It's being abused today. Uh, They have abused the term marriage. Um, Now you can cohabit or live together or a lot of other words that come up with it and uh, other violations of marriage and uh, other immoralities are now referred to as things that are gay, uh, things that are positive. They're trying to make it okay and they've moved into some other realms where you need to um, never give a child an aspirin when we were growing up, but now you can let a child decide what um, person they're going to be in this life. And, and so it's greatly distorted. The world doesn't understand it. And the issue of all of that and much more is they have, they're using the excuse that we are showing them love. And they're not. Total opposite. They're showing them their own selfishness. They want them to like them. They want them to be free to do their own sins. And so if everybody's doing it, I don't, I don't have to worry about it. They're not going to come down on me. And ultimately, Satan's behind it all. It's, it's interesting when you come in and look at this, that he's starting off with the Spirit supplying the gifts in chapter 12, 1 to 11, and then uniting the church around those gifts and, and stressing the priorities that we got to the end of chapter 12. And we see what the world offers in this area, just cheap invitations. You can put Satan on the the first section of my uh, words. You can put the world in when it comes to the wows, because that's what people are always motivated by. You'll notice how often we have people come visit, and they just come and go. They may be a Sunday, maybe two Sundays, and they, they don't stay, and we have no idea. They don't come back and give us a list. Here's what you could improve that would make me stay. We have run some down and asked them, Because if they stayed for three or four weeks and then all of a sudden they're gone, we check up on them. We find out, well, the music isn't what I'm looking for. The children's ministry isn't what I'm looking for. Um, The sermon was too long. And you get a lot of these lame excuses and and you kind of go, what are you looking for? And then you find out a lot of it is not based on love, it's based on selfishness. And they're not going to find what they're looking for because they're not looking for what God wants to give them. He wants us to move toward this area of love. And we need to recognize, even in these spiritual gifts, it's possible to have all the gifts and not be spiritual. You can do all of these things or imitate them in some way before others, and yet it's not the Holy Spirit who is the one behind them. They're man-caused. All of them fit into that category. And so this is what he's correcting them for, and he's bringing them back, and he's saying, the way for you to know if the gifts are being done right is if they're being done with love. If love is the prevailing dominant um, motivation behind it, if it's the ultimate goal of that maturity, that perfection in um, your Christian life and your walk with God, this is how you're going to know. And so he zeroes in on a few of these to kind of explain some of that. Let me read for you first from um, New Living, or not New, just Living Bible. 
Anybody read out of Living Bible this week? Check this out. Okay, a few of you did. He says, as he rewrites this a little bit, if I had the gift of being able to speak in other languages without learning them and could speak in every language there is in all of heaven and earth but didn't love others, I would only be making noise. If I had the gift of prophecy and knew all about what is going to happen in the future, knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would it do? Even if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, I would still be worth nothing at all without love. If I gave everything I have to poor people, and if I were burned alive for preaching the gospel but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatever. Kind of brings it out summarizes it well, simplifies it in a nutshell. And this is what he's trying to get at here. This is missing. This is a lady named, or a woman named Sydney McLaughlin. Have you heard her name recently? Sydney McLaughlin. I'm not surprised. She set a new world record and received the gold medal. Why don't you know that? Because here's what she said. Her words reflect her faith as she boldly proclaimed, records come and go. The glory of God is eternal. And I no longer run for self-recognition, but to reflect his perfect will that is already set in stone. I don't deserve anything. But by grace, through faith, Jesus has given me everything. This woman ran the 400 hurdles in under 22 seconds. I'm sorry, that would be really, really good. Under 52 seconds, I was thinking back to her age there. 52 seconds. I remember in high school when the girls were running, there was one girl that ran under um, uh, one minute, under 60 seconds, just the 400. You, if you've ever been to track me and you watch them run the hurdles, I think there's 10 of them, but I don't remember how many. Is that what it is? Okay, so you're having to jump over hurdles and still run it in under 52 seconds. Nobody's ever done that. She did. Why don't you know about that on the news? Because they knew what she was going to say when she got an opportunity to speak publicly. So it's been hidden. This is on Facebook, but I don't know who put it there. But what she's demonstrated and what I want you to understand is she loves God more than anything else. She just proved it. She could be a potential multimillionaire from what she's just done. That's not the issue to her. It's not the focus. It's not, what she, it's not bragging rights. It's the opportunity here, and we're going to go through and see some of that and next week talk about what, how love is defined, but to see the exact idea of why it's required. She went through all the same training, but God has given her body, but you still have to work the living daylights out of it to accomplish that. You try going to the track over here, which is 400 meters, and time yourself and see how fast you can get around it. You might not do it in a minute and 52 seconds without hurdles and think you're doing really well. In fact, you'll collapse and be exhausted and call for oxygen or whatever else it may take. God is asking for us to lay down our lives for him, and it's best demonstrated in the body. 1 Corinthians 13, or, um, 11, that was just a little way before this, remember about the Lord's Supper? They're not judging the body rightly. It's not the body of Jesus he's talking about. It's the body of Christ. They weren't treating each other correctly. They weren't loving each other. And so he goes into this section to show what they were doing, and where they were putting their emphasis was on all these showy gifts that would impress other people. And they could stand on the podium with their gold medal and say, look at me. I speak tongues more than you all. And Paul says that, but he's not bragging. And we'll get to that eventually. But look what it says here as we move into the text. Five hypotheticals. Five little word if in here. It's a third class condition. It's a hypothetical. He's not telling you these things are true. In fact, with these third class conditions, it's assumed that they are unreality. They're not happening. So for people to grab onto this and say, I speak the tongue of angels. Paul never said there was a tongue of angels. In fact, if you won't go into scripture and listen to how angels speak, how do they talk? They speak whatever language they need to to the person they're addressing. Who do you, what do you think they said to Mary compared to what they said to Abraham? Were they speaking the same language? Probably not. 
So that's where their tongues are coming from. It's not from some super heavenly gift that they have that they're trying to figure out. And this is where people go with this, that they, they get too far removed from what it's actually trying to say. So Paul says, if, hypothetically, I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, the only phrase repeated all the way through here besides that little word, if. He says, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If, in the supposable case, I speak, present tense, but a subjunctive. Suppose I could speak or I might speak here in the tongues of men and of angels. The languages, human communication is all he's talking about here. What's used a lot today in regards to tongues, and we'll talk more about it in chapter 14, is a gibberish. It's been proven in a variety of ways. They've actually recorded people supposedly speaking in tongues and went back and played it and looked for some kind of consistencies. There aren't any. All language, all glossone has consistencies about it regardless of which language it is. There's patterns. There's repetition. There's things that are brought up. We, we had a guy at seminary one time that decided because he could speak another language, I don't remember what it was. It might have even been Hebrew that he could speak. And he went to a church that spoke in tongues and he got up, he stood up and he spoke in Hebrew. So he actually spoke a language if that's the one he used. And he sat down. Somebody else stood up and interpreted him. He could tell right away they had no idea what he said. They just wanted to say these words. They wanted to claim they were doing something. He stood back up and said, what I just said to you was in the language of Hebrew, and what I said to you was this, and what you're doing is not biblical. Do you think they welcomed him there? They escorted him out. You're making a mockery of our church. In essence, the church was making a mockery of God. Claiming things and desiring to do things to try to impress people is all that goes on with that. Tongues had a purpose. We'll see that when we get into chapter 14. That purpose ended. We'll see that two weeks from today, Lord willing, when we talk about the fact that tongues were going to cease. And we'll talk about how all that fits in here. But he says, if I even did this, if I spoke the, t- um, the tongues... With the tongues of men, the tongues, like Paul says, I could take, take on any tongue, any language, without any knowledge of learning it ahead of time. But let's, let's add to that. Let's say I also was able to speak this heavenly language, this language that had um, kind of a higher, maybe a supernatural eloquence is how one person put it. It was it maybe the, when you hear somebody speak and it's not me because I'm an average Joe, I, I have sought to teach the word. I don't consider myself a great orator that everybody stands up and listens to. They record. They flock in. Do you understand? But when you have an orator, someone who stands out in our country, maybe it's their, the sound of their quality of their voice gets your attention first. Really, really deep bass. And they're sitting there expounding. And they have a perfect memory. And so they can stand up there and recite the Gettysburg Address without flaw in uniform or in outfit and with, with all the gestures. And you go, whoa, that is really, really good. That's kind of what Paul's trying to do here when he talks about speaking the tongues of angels. When they showed up to Mary, was, was the angel going, I, 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 I have a message. I, I can't remember what it is. Oh, oh, no, I remember now. Is that how the angel showed up? Or do you think when you go look at what they actually say when they're in front of people, it's impressive? First thing's always fear not because they're scared spitless. These are not normal people. Anyway, we won't go off into what angels are, but, but he's trying to bring up here, let's say I go to the extreme and I am the greatest orator and I put the language better than anybody can do on earth to where you'd consider it a heavenly tongue, but it's a tongue. And he says, but if I do not have love, if I, present tense, leave out serving others... Leave out the selfless, sacrificial devotion to those around me. You know what that would cause people to do according to chapter 14? Shut their mouths. What did Paul tell them? If there's no interpreter, don't talk. Why would they do that? In obedience to God and in love to those around them because their talk would waste three minutes of church time. You would not understand it. If I went into some language right now and I could go into Spanish, that'd be the best I could do. Hola, Isabel, como esta? And, and, and you go, I think I can understand that. But let's say I went into Swahili or, or I went into some other one and I speak it kind of like um, 
a lot of Spanish speakers are. They're talking really fast. That's how I talk anyway. But, but I do it with English, and it still sounds like Spanish. But, it, but if I were to do all this stuff, you would have no benefit whatsoever from it. But if I did it with eloquence, if I did it with authority, if I impressed you with my style, you say, do it again next Sunday. I want to bring a friend. Is that what we do with it? That's not what it's about. The whole purpose of it was a spiritual gift given as a sign to unbelieving Jews. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 22. That's all it was for. It was to serve bringing them in. Guess what happened in Acts 2? They spoke in tongues. And what did they say when they spoke in tongues? Because those people all understood them, not only in their own languages from 15 different areas, but in their own dialects. They heard it, and what did they hear? It's summarized in verse 12, Acts 2. You open book exam. When I bring up stuff, you're supposed to look it up. Someday I won't be here. That takes on new meaning to me now. Did I get it wrong? I'm sorry, Acts, Acts chapter 1. See, I threw you off, but I didn't see pages turning, so you, we're both at fault. No, it's, I had it right. Yeah, you guys are trying to lead me astray. But it's actually verse 11. He spoke to all of them. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. That was it. Peter goes on to give them a message, a sermon, and he's not speaking in tongues anymore. Why not? Wouldn't that be more impressive for them to hear it in their own language, in their own dialect, to hear this message? No, they got the sign. They got the indication. They were amazed at what they saw and heard with the tongues of fire and all that was going on with Galileans sounding the same way as somebody from all distant lands of the area in their own languages. That was the sign. It wasn't given to be a message. It wasn't given to evangelize. It was never given for that purpose. It was the sign to get their attention. It was a mark, a token, a proof that what Paul was doing was from God. Then he gave them the message in their own language, all of their own, probably Aramaic, but who knows. And so we get it in Greek because it's been brought over. But they're passing it on. And so we've taken this idea of tongues and it's supposed to be not understandable. It's, I don't know how it impresses anybody. And I don't even want to demonstrate. But I've told you before, I I was in a building of 3,000 when I was about 17, and everybody there was speaking in tongues. Great auditorium. I literally looked around because I was, well, I shouldn't say everybody because it wasn't me. And there could have been some other exceptions there. But the vast majority were speaking. And I looked around, looking at these people like, what are you doing? I had never heard that before, never seen that before. And how did it benefit me? How was that spiritual gift used to build me up, to serve my needs? Zip. It scared the living daylights out of me. And that's okay. You can be scared with things that doesn't make them bad. It just was unfamiliar, but it was worthless. They all went off in their own little worlds and what they were doing. And I looked around a lot. They weren't paying attention to me. But he's trying to stress here, it's love. It's this real, selfless, sacrificial devotion. It's being led by the Holy Spirit to where you lay down your life for others. God so loved the world that he sent his son to lay his life down for others. Not just to die, but to live a sinless life, to be that sinless sacrifice, to set an example, to make disciples, apostles who started the church. Then he sent the Holy Spirit to work with them. We are needy people. But he says, if this is all I do, and I don't have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And it's a perfect tense that I have become. It is a past action with present results. I have already become these things, and I continue as these things. You ever wonder why you come to church sometimes and you leave, you walk away and you get in your car and you're kind of reflecting on everything and you go, that was really flat. That, that didn't benefit me at all. And the first thing you do is blame yourself or blame others. Which one's normal? Oh, always the preacher first, okay? Then 
others in the church, maybe somebody ignored you or said something mean to you or didn't pay attention to you in some way, you know, when you're talking directly to their face or whatever, and you go, oh, I don't like that place. And so your mind, like my announcement did earlier, which I didn't want to have to do in that way, it distracts you from other things. See, you already forgot it, didn't you? Good job. It doesn't matter. It's Christ's church. We are serving him to his, at his pleasure or for his pleasure, and we're looking for him to actually build the church. But he says here, if I um, am not showing love, but I'm trying to impress you with these my special languages, he says, I become to you a noisy gong. The word noisy is used in Luke 21, 25, like the roaring of the sea. It's kind of this background white noise, kind of a, a loud droning sound that comes in there. And it's made with a brazen musical instrument, this gong, made out of copper. Typically, most of them want to say bronze. But so I become like this noisy gong, and I should have gotten one today. I could have brought up here, bong. Are you feeling better now? Bong. Now, now you got your stupor, or you're kind of waking up, or you, you're getting emotionally and excited about the message, right? Bong. It doesn't do anything. Except maybe hurt your ears, depending on how loud it is. He says, I become a noisy gong. And, and also he says, a clanging cymbal. This, this word is used in Mark 5.38, this clanging, like the wailing of the mourners after the death in, in the family there. That's what clanging is. It's a hollow basin of brass, clashing. We, we know what symbols are like, and we can see a lot of those are hand-pounded. They, they shape them out into what they're doing, but again, I'm sure it's all machine done now, but they, they used to beat them out. And you'd take two of them, and you'd put them together, and you'd get this, what sound? Clanging, which the Bible brings up as more of a wailing of mourners. You ever been by the drummer when he uses the symbols? Or maybe a marching parade, very quiet. They're very um, subdued, petite, kind of. They aren't made to be heard. Is that how it works? No, it's the other way around. And so here you have this loud noise that gets, totally gets your attention, but what has it accomplished? Nothing. It's white noise that's momentarily electrifying. That's how one person put it. And you're going you're to jerk. All of a sudden, there it is. Wow. But then you stand there and you go, okay, it's over, and what good was that? If it fits in with an orchestra, if it has a purpose, if it's bringing it to a crescendo, there's, there's a purpose, but it's a bigger picture of what's going on. But here, all you're trying to bring out in this first one regarding the words, and this is Satan's style. I told you I think um, a lot of tongues today is of the devil, and I, I could get cards and letters, but who cares? You can't fire me. Well, you kicked me out sooner, but, but it's the, the idea here is he's trying to bring out that Satan has this imitation, this fake cheap invitation, where real love is meaningful, it is practical, it is consistent, and it always serves the hearers. That's what it's for. That's why Acts 2 is so exciting. But you rarely have people talk about 3,000 people coming to Christ. You always have people talk about, oh, they spoke in tongues, and these tongues of fire came down, and, and uh, all this other stuff that went on there. That's what they focus on. Is that what you do when you go on trips? You're driving down the road, you saw some sign you've never seen before, and you finally get to your family's house, and you, you're tired, and you pull in, and you go, oh, i got to tell you something. I saw a sign on the road about two hours ago. Man, it was impressive. Never seen one like that. The arrow went like this, and went like this, and went like this, and then it went backwards. You ever seen one of those? Pretty impressive. Is that what I talk about? Or do I talk about the fact I drove off the road because I wasn't paying attention to what the sign said? That's all it was there for. It was an indicator to make me go in the right direction. And that's all tongues were doing. It was trying to get Israel's attention. And they blew it. And so as 13.8 is going to tell you, it ceased. Middle voice on its own. It went away. And God turned his attention, his focus to the Gentiles. In, the, in Acts 13 on. So here's this first one. As you think about these noisy gongs and clanging cymbals, they were used in pagan worship, where they also spoke in gibberish. I don't even want to call it tongues. It was just letting your mind say and do whatever it wanted to come up. That's not what tongues are. 
Never has been, never would be. And so here we come back to the second one. Paul gives a second hypothetical. He says in verse 2, And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Second hypothetical, third class condition. He's trying to bring up the idea here that this assumes unreality. He's not saying he has the gift, and yet you go back to Paul, and what was Paul able to do? Okay, but it's regarding prophesying. I need more music. I need you to have some kind of thing you can hit. Dum, 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 da, dum, dum, dum. Give you a little bit of time to think, process, open your Bible. But did Paul ever prophesy? Did Paul ever tell you of something that was going to happen later? Yes. On the what? And what was going to happen to them? Oh, there's an example. Paul has to be a prophet as well as an apostle, and, and he functioned in other ways, and it tells you that in Acts 13. When the Holy Spirit contacted them, he was contacting those that were prophets. I forget what other words are in there. Paul was one of them. He prophesied. But he puts it here in a hypothetical. If I have the gift of prophecy, maybe he didn't see it that way. Maybe as an apostle, God let him prophesy, but it wasn't really his gift. I don't know. Apostle was the top position to have. But he puts it hypothetically, and he says, if I have this gift, this ability we looked at earlier, the supernatural ability to speak forth new revelation or to tell future things, what was going to come? Paul was able to do that. But he makes it hypothetical because it's not his focus. He isn't trying to bring out what gifts he has or doesn't have. He's trying to get you to realize if you do these things without love, as he walks through the gifts, that he, some of them, out of chapter 12, he said, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. Absolutely worthless. It's why you got up this morning and you confessed sin. Maybe after you spent a little bit of time in the scriptures and God got your attention. And why would I do that? First, because... Why do I confess sin? Because I have sinned, and that's what everybody does, right? No, it isn't. Why do I confess sin? Because I've been convicted, because the Bible tells me to. It gives me opportunity to restore my relationship, 1 John 1, 9, that you have memorized, and if you don't, you should. I need forgiveness. I'm restoring that relationship with God. So I confess that sin to God, right? I'm sorry? At that point. I don't, I don't want us to be living in sin, but the reason I got up and I read, time, I read the word and God brought up something in my life that may have been out of line and I confessed and dealt with it was because... I'm a believer and what was the plan for the day? To walk with him would be the overall picture. Specifically today, it would be to, to go spend time with other believers. And why am I going there? To be served or to serve? What good is serving if I'm not walking by the Spirit? It is worthless. See, there's a lot of Sundays that we come to church or we visit some other church and we go in there and it's flat because it's us. It's not the church. I always ask people, they, they come out of a service and they go, I didn't get anything out of that. So once in a while, in rare occasions, have somebody been that honest with me. I didn't get anything out of your message. I go, oh, that's interesting. I appreciate your honesty. I usually say that back. Did, but did you notice what we were reading? Did, did you have a Bible? Yeah. Did you open it up? Yeah. Did you read the passage? Yeah. And you didn't get anything out of you reading God's word? Well... Isn't that what it's all about? I'm just a facilitator here, folks. If you're not spending time reading ahead of time, preparing for coming to the service, walking by the Spirit so that you are equipped and, I mean, ready to handle whatever he wants to lead you into, it's going to be flat. And it's going to be all about me. Poor little Jack. Nobody loved me today. The fly on the wall. That's not what it's about. It's about serving Christ, and this is what we zero in on. And so I need to clean up my act. This is something that God has helped me with in recent times. Every time I have a temptation to sit in some way, I still do some of them. 
I won't go into detail. But anytime I'm tempted to do that and it's something radically like, wham, that would be bad. I turn to this and I say, God, if I do this, I start having a conversation with him. That's a good place to go. If I do this, here's all the dominoes that will start falling. And the worst one it starts with is God. And the next one will be with my wife. And she won't know why I'm out of sorts. Because I chose to do something that I shouldn't have done. And then it will be with the church. And then it will be with my message. Because the Holy Spirit is not behind my message. He's waiting for me to get cleaned up. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and allow us to function. But too often, with these spiritual gifts, like 1 Corinthians 12, we think it's kind of mundane. It's kind of automatic. It's just being a, going to church. And so you woke up this morning, every one of you, and said, church or no church? I even said that. Ask my wife. Told her I didn't want to go to church today. I didn't want to stand up here and share anything with you. I'm preaching a message that's not, it's not wowing you like we're going to get into here with, with the second aspect of it. I, I'm not telling you stories. You go, oh, oh, and you weep and you cry and you laugh and you, you just get involved. And you can't wait to go tell my stories. I don't want you telling my stories. I want you to tell God's story. That's why I'm here. That's partly why I got away from that. When I first started preaching uh, many years ago here in Lapine, I did a 35-minute message typically. If I went long, it was 40. And I purposely brought up a lot of stories that would stand out in people's minds. And then I started realizing all they're remembering is the stories. Like that woman, how old was she? 21, because I confused you. I used the number 22 to tell you how fast she ran the 400, and it really was how, how fast? 52, which is, again, go, go try it someday. Even if you're in shape, go try it. You won't come anywhere close. But the story is what stands out in our minds. And, and if it's an emotional one, if it really draws you in, it's, oh, and we have Kleenex around here somewhere, but we never need it. I don't preach like that. Sorry. Plus, it takes time, just like I'm doing right now, to explain all this. I'd rather teach you the truth of what Scripture says. So here's Paul. If I speak, and he's first person, he's changed over. If you go back to chapter 12, it's not first person. He's talking to the, to the Corinthians. He's not talking about himself. Now he switches over, which is why some people think 1 Corinthians 13 was written to stand alone. And when Paul wrote the Corinthians, he, he, they had a problem with the gifts, and he wanted them to understand this. So he took this writing, which is fine, inspired of God, and he inserted it. That's what some people want to think because it's so different from chapter 12. And it switches back in chapter 14. And so you kind of look at it and you go, well, what's going on? And so Paul's using himself as an example and he said, it's not about tongues. It's not about prophesying. It's not about knowing all mysteries. This knowing is a form of oida, and the all mysteries are those secret things that nobody else knows that only God can reveal to you is what really comes out from that. And he says, it's all previously unknown intellectual truths. All secrets. Who, who alone knows all secrets? God. You think he's being a little on the exaggeration side, using a little bit of hyperbole? Yes, that's what he's doing all the way through here. The subjunctive is trying to stress that. Paul's not giving you anything that's reality. He's giving you examples to focus back on. He said, I can know all mysteries. I can have all knowledge. Now he moves over to Gnosko. All possible um, things that I could perceive practically. All these truths perceived practically, but they're more experiential. I've experienced everything. Who is that? Only God. God didn't have to wait for something to happen. He's already been there. He's outside of time. And yet, like we're talking in Sunday school, people want you to think that God has planned everything in a sense that it's locked in. And that is not the case taught anywhere in Scripture. God will accomplish what he's after, but God never tells men to go murder somebody. It's not his plan. Why not? Murder's a sin. God didn't encourage people to sin. His son needed to die, but God sent him to Israel to receive. And it says in John 1, 12, many received him. To them gave he the right or the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's why he came. He came to die because that's what God ultimately knew was going to happen, and that way he could pay for our sins. But it wasn't, it's not God 
telling people to go do bad things. And then it's all part of his supernatural, or, or better word is just a all controlling plan. You'll do this, and now you do this. And that's that robotic idea that's not taught in the Bible. And I give you examples of that, but I don't have a lot of time. One stands out I always go back to in 2 Samuel, I think it is, 13. When David's hiding out with the sons of Keilah or whoever they are, and he, or the city, and he says to them, if I stay here, will the men turn me in? Yep. And then he gives them another alternative I just went blank on whatever it was, and God gives him an answer to both of them. How can he give her an answer to both of them when only one of them is going to happen? Because that's what God gives us the freedom to do, to make decisions. Does God want you to sin? Does he want me to sin? No. So why do we sin? If God is in control, if God is sovereign, if God is only doing what's best for us, and he's, in, he's totally making sure there's no temptation we can't handle, which he does, why do I sin? Because I have, yeah, I have free will. As a believer, I don't have a sin nature. That went away when, when uh, I became a believer. I got a new nature. The old man was crucified, Romans 6, 6, somewhere in there. I'm, as I get older, I'm now seeing areas on the page. I'm losing my references. Ask my wife. She had explained to me the difference between a fork and a knife the other day. Almost. But he's trying to bring out these hypotheticals because they're all wrapped up on him. And he goes, it doesn't matter. Take tongues to the ultimate. Take prophecy to the ultimate. Take knowledge of mysteries and, and experiential knowledge to the ultimate. And even in thirdly, he says, hypothetically, if I have all faith, if I possess, maybe possess all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Who possesses all faith to remove mountains? How many mountains did Jesus move? None. Because this is a proverb. This is a Hebrew proverb. It was common to say of a great teacher that he was a rooter up of mountains. He's trying to bring up the idea here that if you're really, really believing, if you really trust in this hypothetical assumed uh, unreal, that you could possess or might be furnished with all faith, this complete trust, Firm con um, persuasion, total conviction. I believe right now God wants me to fly. But I believe it. I have all faith. So what am I going to do? Like me and my brother did when we were kids? Make a plane? Get on top of the chicken coop? Push it off. Thankful that he was in the front. I didn't get hurt. It didn't fly. And so we get these ideas, and Paul's not trying to tell you to go move mountains around. Jesus didn't even do that. That can be really dangerous. You know what you have to know to move mountains? Where are you going to put it? So if you tell yourself, I'm only going to move mountains where there are no people, how do you know there are no people? How, how big is this? It's not a hill. It's the word mountain. You can look it up. How do you know what's on the other side of it? And then what about all those poor little bunny rabbits? Or deer? So you, you have to have knowledge. You have to have all knowledge if you really want to be careful. You have to be God to go around doing this, and he will do this in the end. But he won't be trying to protect people. He'll be judging, and people will die because mountains will move. But he's trying to bring up this proverb, this idea that I can have this super faith, which is what a lot of people want to claim today. What do they call them on TV? You don't watch them. That's good. They didn't come right to your attention. Faith healers, maybe faith workers, but, but they're, they're out there because these guys are supermen. They can do stuff. How do you know? You can feel it, okay? Or you sent money in and they better do something because it's going to cost me a lot. Or you go there and they have crutches and wheelchairs and stuff hanging on the walls of people that supposedly were healed. You ever talk to somebody who got healed? Did you ever see their doctor's report prior to being healed? What a lot of people are claiming today is either things that you cannot see, which is the opposite of what Jesus did. He did it as a sign. If you can't see it, it's kind of worthless. And I've asked people, even one guy here one time, I was trying to be nice, 
But I asked if he'd ever seen somebody raised from the dead. And he, well, he goes, I didn't personally see it, but I know it happens. I said, how do you know? Well, because it happened over in Africa. That's, that's not what it's for. That's not what the faith involves. It has a purpose and it has to be wrapped around God's will for your life. But he says, I can do all these super things that so many are claiming today and they're phonies. He said, but do not have love. Exact same idea. Present subjunctive. I leave out serving others. I, have, I don't have a selfless sacrificial devotion to the people around me. Then he gives a little different phrase. He says, I am nothing. He says, up there, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now he's going more personal. My existence is meaningless without love. You see what he's trying to do here? He's not trying to tell you that you should go around um, attempting these things to prove whether or not you have them. he's, He's not trying to tell you that you should feel worthless. But what he's trying to tell you is that that's what the focus of your life is. And you're not doing it out of love. You have selfish motivations. The Holy Spirit's not the one leading this or supernaturally giving you the ability. Then it's worthless. I could say things I could get in trouble for. See if I can say it generally. The majority of churches in Lapine, maybe I shouldn't even say it that way. There's a lot of churches in Lapine who believe that you can be healed, that believe that you can speak in tongues. A lot of people looking for emotional experiences. And if you question that, if you even bring up anything to do with this, even with the idea that those gifts fade out in the New Testament, we'll talk more about that when we get a little further. They go away. Even Paul himself, prays three times to be healed, left Epaphras sick at Miletus or Epaphroditus. He tells Timothy, take a little wine for his stomach. You see it fade out in the New Testament. They stop doing it because those signs are no longer necessary. Those people all died anyway. Jesus never even healed everybody. You see what I'm trying to bring up to you is so you start looking at Scripture and realize we have been duped. We have been sold a bill of goods that, that somehow this is what makes us important. Is when I have the special gift and I can go around making a difference. You know what makes you important to God? Not your abilities. It's not even your performance. What makes you important to God? His own son. Your faith in his son. It's the son that makes all the difference. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then you have a permanent, eternal relationship with God that will never go away. He's invested in seeing you be successful in every way you can be spiritually. How many of us are going to run the 400 hurdles in 52 seconds at the Olympics. Anybody try? I, I don't want to put you down. Maybe you're really good. Well, then, then you're not worth anything. So if you can't stand in the pulpit or in the podium, same difference almost, and, and claim this gold medallion and say, I'm the best. What she did was she acknowledged, I'm the, I'm the best for now. She didn't deny it. She wore the gold, and she has a flag in her hand. I have a picture if you want to see it when, when you're all done. It's just sitting up here. She actually held the American flag. What is she saying about what she was doing? I didn't run for me. I ran for my country. She's not bragging about her. She's not bringing up, oh, you realize all the sweat, blood, and tears that I put into this for four years, maybe six years, five, whatever it's been, five years at least for most of them now. She's 22. She probably couldn't do it when she was 17, so she wasn't there. Maybe at 21, she wouldn't have been as good. I just said it wrong. Maybe at 20, she couldn't have been as good. She wouldn't have been there when she was 16. See, now I got myself all mixed up. I'm showing my imperfections. I'm I'm not Superman. Superjack. You want your attention to be on Jesus Christ. He can speak in tongues. He can prophesy. He can know all mysteries. He can know all knowledge. He, he can have all faith. He can remove mountains. And he actually loves us, which is why he didn't go around moving mountains. But he gives him a third hypothetical. So he's going through touching on some of the gifts that really stood out to them. And we realize as he gets to the end of that second one, I kind of left out. He says, I am. It's a, it's a first, uh, first person, present tense. But he says, I'm nothing. I'm of no account. I'm an absolute zero. Real love, 
that he's trying to stress here is impactful, it is selfless, it is life-changing. This is what God wants to see in the church. This is what he's going to describe and then explain what it, what it needs to be because that's the perfect that ultimately comes is that love. But that's the world style. The world style is to wow us, even the Olympics. And I haven't seen a lot, but I've been listening. I got the guy that, that got five, he got five gold medals, the swimmer. Maybe most of you aren't listening to any of this stuff. You, you pick up on something, what, one gold medal, eh, what's, what's the big deal with only one? Come back when you have four or five or seven. You know, then we'll talk about you. But come back when you are impressing us with your, with your feats and, and you want to show off to people because that's what we like to watch. We want to be entertained. That's the world style. Now you move into the verse 3, and it's more of the flesh style. Satan, the world, and now the flesh. And he says here, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. He's trying to lay out here another if, hypothetical, assumed, assumes unreality. It's a hypothetical condition. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. But he said, Let, let's go to the extent, the extreme extent that I give, and a subjunctive again used here, that I might dole out, I could supply or bestow with food is the idea behind this word. Because to feed is part of the word. I give to feed is the Greek word. There is nothing mentioned in scripture about the poor. So I'm sorry with my outline, I missed the, the italics to tell you that those words weren't supposed to be in there. But if you spend a little bit of time, you realize they aren't in there. He's not talking about the poor. The focus is not on poor people. The focus here is on the giver. It's on you being the super saint. And it's assuming um, that, that you are passing on everything. And he uses that little word all again. The word give here is described, described a mother bird to her babies in the nest. How does a mother bird give? What does she spend her whole day doing? Flying around. Hopefully there's a daddy bird and they're taking turns. But once they, they get up and they get a little bit of feathers on them, both of them can go out and hunt. And they come back and they give them everything. The little baby birds are a mess. It just upchucks it all on the whole baby bird. And the baby bird's got to find it and eat it. Is that how it works? No. no. The mother gives them just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. But when she's done, she has nothing. Time to go get more. When we got married, we had food poisoning. And 26 in our wedding party got sick. And I've mentioned that to many of you. And one, one good friend that was part of the wedding party had um, diabetes, and he thought because he was throwing up for hours, it was a really good time, um, that he shouldn't take his insulin. And he almost went into a coma. And he found out, as a young man, very young, you don't do that. So if you are a diabetic and you start throwing up, you make sure you keep checking your blood to make sure. Now, they have so much more now than they did 41 years ago. But, but the issue there is, he thought I wasn't getting anything. It's the same thing with the mother bird. When she's eating, what is, what is her body doing with what's in her stomach? Breaking it down and digesting it. So she's not starving, but she's giving up everything. And that's the picture he's trying to bring up here. If I give, um, if I might dole out, and that's literally what this word's trying to bring up. You're giving a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And someone will look at this and they say, they go around almost with the idea of drawing attention to themselves. I give Bev $5 and, and uh, Ron, $5, and John, $5. And, and so all of you, what do you start talking about? Jack's handing out money. And so Paul shows up to get his $5, right? Because it looks like, he, but, but why am I doing that? Why don't I just put it into a charity and let them dole it out? Or why don't I just give one person a whole bunch quietly and tell them you can't tell anybody? Or do it secretly? Why am I doling it out? I'm drawing Attention to the giver, not to the ones being given to. It's all about me. And this is what he's actually trying to bring out in the text here, that he's trying to emphasize what's going on. I'm giving my goods, my property, my sustenance, whatever it is I have to feed. And it literally means this word, to, uh, I give to feed by morsels, one mouthful at a time. 
So he says, well, if that's not enough that I've given up everything, let's go to the other extreme here, finally, with the, the sixth one. And he says, if I delivered, third class condition, it's hypothetical, it assumes unreality. He's not telling you to go around doing this, although people have in the past. But if I could deliver, and it's a subjunctive, if I might hand over or could abandon and yield up my body, my physical being, to be burned, consumed with fire. That's my goal. And you don't see it in the, in the Greek text, but the little word too is actually a hint of clause. I, I'm giving up, delivering my body in order that it will be consumed with fire. Any volunteers? Well, next Sunday we'll have the baptismal right after church, right? You don't get to eat until Dan and Kimberly have been baptized and share their testimonies. Then you come back here and eat, and then we're going to have a body burning. <laughs> you never want to have a body burning on an empty stomach. Baptismals are okay, and so I, I volunteer. How many do you think would stay? Come on. Nobody? What else would you maybe do? Oh, Celeste will stay. She wants to see it happen. But what might you do instead? Call the fire department. You can't burn something in the summertime, you know, in August. That's all they're concerned about. Or he called the police department because this guy's obviously mentally deranged. And the police department comes for whatever. Call him up if you have a hangnail. That's almost what it's getting to be like today. He's saying this whole thing here, if I do even those extreme ideas, this most painful death of great suffering, but I do not have love, I leave out serving other people. I am not selflessly, sacrificially devoted. That's not why I'm doing it. If I run back in like my um, brother-in-law's mother did in a fire, and it ultimately killed her, she ran back in to rescue one or two of her grandchildren. I don't remember how many were in there. And she covered them up to keep the flames away from her. But when she came out, she had no hair left on her head. And it killed her. Now, if you're going to lay down your life that way, that's just something totally different. You're not committing suicide. You are selflessly, sacrificially devoting yourself to someone else. This is what we should be hearing stories of in the church if those stories even need to go around. Not burning houses, although that may happen. And it could happen very easily to firemen every day as something collapses on them. All kinds of protocols, but you never know. Or something blows up or whatever it may be. But this is what should be standing out. This is what the world takes notice of because that's real love. But if you put it on for a show, like many people do. And half of the ones that claim to be committing suicide aren't. They're just trying to get attention. And they have desperate needs. Don't, don't, I'm not trying to underestimate that. And you need to go and work with them and try to get them talked out of it. But the ones that really want to commit suicide, they don't talk about it. Or whatever else it may be. And so you're struggling with this thing, and you've got a lot of people trying to show off. And he says, if it's all about you and not about others, it um, profits me nothing. There is no help, no benefit. There's no advantage to it going on. It is worthless of no account. Same word he used in, in verse 2, absolute zero value. The results to others are meaningless. Real love is useful. Real love is beneficial. Real love is eternal. And as I read to you from um, the Living Bible, which I stuffed somewhere here, and I'm going to read it to you again. He says, if I had the gift of being able to speak in other languages without learning them, or could speak in every language there is in all of heaven and earth, but didn't love others, I would only, making, only be making noise. If I had the gift of prophecy and knew all about what is going to happen in the future, knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would it do? Even if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, I would still be worth nothing at all without love. Do you, you kind of get the impression of what Paul's trying to do here? In this hypothetical um, hyperbole, he's trying to make an extreme example of this so you understand how important real love is. And real love comes from God, through the Holy Spirit. When you walk by the Spirit, it produces fruit in us. And the first one mentioned is 
love, and it's a package deal. Fruit is singular. It all goes together, but love is going to be the dominant thing, and it's going to follow from there, all the rest of them. In verse 3, if I gave everything I have to poor people, bit by bit by bit, and if I were burned alive for preaching the gospel but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatsoever. You see, the words, worthless. The wows, worthless. And even my works. Words are more with the sign gifts. The wows are more with the... Um, speaking or serving gifts, and then the, I mean, uh, speaking gifts, and then the last one, the works are more of my serving. That's how they typically break them down, speaking, serving, signs. And they'll come to you and they'll tell you the signs are gone. Many people will today. They'll tell you apostle prophets, gone. And the only thing left really are the ones that are more serving. Well, all of them served according to 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. That's what they were for, to serve the body. But that's what's left. And I'm making this proposal to you, and I have made it, and I want to keep, because um, you've got to find out things or look up things and try to prove me wrong. Uh, you will learn a lot by doing that, won't you? But you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. That was the one that finally dawned on me that I think the writer of Hebrews was trying to say, they're past. And I explained some of that last week. So instead of making it my focus to draw all this attention to me and do these supernatural things to impress people, I realize I need to let the Holy Spirit work through me. And if he wants me to be a janitor in a church of 10 people, and they only show up on Sundays, they never even see me clean the place. And God says, there's your post. How good of a janitor am I supposed to be? Devoted. Loving those 10 people and making the building as clean as possible, as functional as possible, doing whatever I can so that when they show up on Sunday, they can focus on God and not on the facility. That's what 10 or 20% do around here. Mark asked for weed eaters, and he got a few people show up last Saturday. I don't know where everybody was. I was here, but I had other things to do. So I was doing them here. And there were some other jobs going on here. And there's stuff that happens all the time. You don't have to be recognized. You just have to be in the center of God's will. That's what he's after. And that real love is what's going to impact. It's not going to be meaningless at all. It's what God is going to use for his glory. Because that's the only person that you're really trying to impress. So when you think about this um, Sydney McLaughlin, if you see that name show up, that'd be good. See if they let her share her testimony. But her focus was God. You can like doing things. She obviously likes running. She ran a lot. That's okay. Use what God has given to you. Some of you like to fish. Some of you like to do crafts. Some of you like to shop. Some of you shouldn't shop so much. <laughs> but in all of those situations, whatever I'm doing, I do it all to the glory of God. My job, I don't try to impress people. It takes a lot of pressure off, pressure off when we go that route. So let's, let's look at love. You're going to look at verses 4, 5, 6, 7. In some versions, a little bit of 8 kind of closes it off. And you're going to ask yourself, what is this? And is this dominating my life? Is this who I am? If not, then you need to go back to what I said earlier. You need to find some time with God. There needs to be confession. There needs to be a plea for him to, to work on this, show you how. There needs to be humility so that you will go to somebody and get help. Others can spot it. They know everything about me that's wrong. I don't have to ask. Enough of you love me enough that I get told things here and there. In a good way most of the time. We need that. But if you don't want someone coming to you and pointing something out, I'd go back to this list you're going to look at on love, these 15 characteristics and say, okay, what's missing here? Something's missing in my life. And I've replaced it with something else, like pride, selfishness, greed, money, whatever it may be. Sorry, I only have six more messages. You're going to get it. But you can go online and watch hundreds of them that have been recorded. So make sure they're charging money after I'm gone. 
And I am not begging anybody to put anything in a retirement fund. That is not what they set that up for. That is uh, God providing. Um, it's not even really a serious need at this point. But if it's something you want to do because you missed me or whatever, you can. But it's gone into a general pot, and the, it just helps the church to supply what they're desiring when made a commitment to. I could say more, but I better not. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us. You have provided us a building with chairs and air conditioning and people around us that love us. You've given us the Bible in a variety of forms of translations and paraphrases. You've given us time, a 40-hour work week for a lot of people, maybe longer for some, but you've given us everything we need, and we're going to give an account to you for what we did with that. So may it be focused on loving you and loving each other and loving the lost and loving even our enemies. That pleases you, and it's your desire to work through us. So bless this church and use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.